Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about Daisy Edith Wallace, a lovely but lonely lady with big dreams and a warm heart who struggled against the odds to build her own business from scratch and having succeeded She should have been happy, but unbeknownst to her, someone wanted her dead. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 59, Daisy Edith Wallace, The Slaughtered Spinster. Today, I'm standing in High Hoban, WC2, a three-minute walk east of the Denmark Place fire, a five-minute dawdle southwest of the lonely death of Nora Upchurch, and a ten-minute stroll from the truly strange but unsolved death of Vera Crawford, coming soon to Murder Mile. High Hoban is one of central London's busiest roads, stretching from Farringdon to St Paul's, Hoban to Shaftesbury Avenue, as long lines of cars, trucks and buses burp great plumes of choking fumes across a grey, soulless landscape, with no grass, trees or birds. Just concrete, cranes and commuters. Being somewhere between Oxford Street and Covent Garden, High Hoban is awash with lost tourists, bemused by the lack of street signs and sunlight, and unaware that the longer they stay, the faster they'll develop the three stages of being a local. The London Tan, as your sickly pale skin is coated in ten layers of dust, dirt and dog shit. The London Crick, as your neck is permanently fused downwards for fear of making eye contact. And the London Gape, an aghast expression your mouth always makes any time someone says hello or thank you. Demolished in the mid-1950s, 
157 High Hoburn was a four-storey building with a vacant shop on the ground floor and six offices above. All rented to strangers, who sat alone. Their silence punctuated by the dull thrum of sewing machines, the constant cacophony of telephones, and a distant squeak as an unseen person enters or exits by the single street door. Now replaced by a new high-rise called Commonwealth House, as rented office space, oddly, its purpose is exactly the same. But thankfully, as of yet, that's where the similarity ends. As it was here, on Monday the 15th of August 1949, in the solitude of the top floor office of a lovely but lonely lady, that her big dream began and her life was ended. Daisy Edith Wallace was born on the 25th of May 1913 as the second of three daughters to Thomas and Ada, two loving parents with a strong sense of family pride. As upbringings go, she couldn't have asked for better. And although she survived two world wars, this isn't a story about poverty, tragedy or hardship. As Daisy was a lovely lady with a very ordinary life, who was good, honest and decent. As a timid child, with a tiny voice, fidgeting fingers and downcast eyes, Daisy never spoke up. She was a shy girl who hid in the shadows. And although she had big dreams, a noisy city was no place for a small, quiet girl. So raised with her two sisters, Nella and Dora, at number four Cornwall Gardens in Wilston Green, northwest London, a neat red brick terraced house in a quiet cul de sac with a small garden. So safe and warm was this safety net that well into her mid 30s, Daisy remained at home. Although bookish, being intelligent, Daisy graduated from Duddenhill School with a school certificate. And having qualified from Cricklewoods Clark College as a shorthand typist, one of the few trades open to a woman, with the West End just a few tube stops away, she entered the workforce. But the 1930s were tough, as living in the wake of the Great Depression, jobs were scarce. Lacking any confidence or sparkle, she didn't stand out. And as a woman, her career options were strictly limited. Trapped in an era where, except as a teacher, a nurse or a mother, women weren't allowed to flourish, Daisy knuckled down with a series of administrative roles. As a typist for a furniture removals firm, as an assistant at the Abbey Road Building Society in Baker Street, and as a secretary for British Airways. But for Daisy, this was never a job, a wage, or even a career. This was a learning curve, with her plan to make something of herself. And as her experience grew, her confidence bloomed. With her skills seen as vital to the war effort, Daisy was exempt from national service and seconded to the Air Ministry in Aldwych, just off High Hoban, 
After four more years as a secretary, Daisy decided it was time to fulfill her dreams. And armed with glowing references, a bulging contacts book, and an impeccable work record stemming back 20 years. On the 25th of January 1949, she took a big bold step and set up her own secretarial agency, based in a top floor office at 157 High Hoban. Seven months later, in that office, Daisy would be stabbed to death. With the war over and the infrastructure shattered, as the country strived to get back on its feet, new industries boomed and fresh opportunities arose for enterprising young men and women. For the first time in her life, away from the safety of a weekly wage, work colleagues and a set routine, Daisy was finally her own boss. And although she was scared, with this as her dream, she was determined for it to succeed never relying on debts, loans or handouts. The Adelphi Secretarial Agency was Daisy's first business venture. And as an employment agency for senior secretaries set in the heart of London's West End, she built it all from scratch, working six days a week, and she funded it herself using her own savings. Being well-spoken, well-dressed and well-mannered, Daisy always made a good impression for new clients. Her smile was warm, her voice was soft, and her face was kind. Although slow to start, business was good, as being based in a small affordable building on a busy city street between two tube stations, every day saw Daisy visited by a throng of passing trade. But working every day, by herself, in a tiny office, Daisy's greatest fear wasn't failure, but loneliness. After 20 years as part of a large team, 157 High Hoban must have seemed like a lonely place for Daisy. As with the ground floor vacant, there was no shop to chat in before the day began. With a single street door leading to the three floors above, there was no receptionist and with six small offices rented out to five strangers with very dissimilar professions, a tailor, a dressmaker, a theatre agent, a fruit importer, and a secretarial recruiter, with no place to mingle, no reason to mix, and conversations limited to polite pleasantries, like most rented offices, everyone kept to themselves. On the top floor was the Adelphi Secretarial Agency, staffed solely by Daisy. A five-foot, eight-inch lady sat behind a small desk in a claustrophobically tiny office, just 11 feet long by eight feet wide. With a chair, a filing cabinet, a rug, a phone, a typewriter, and to the left, a depressingly small window with grimy views of Dunn's Passage, a dirty little alley cutting from High Hoban to New Oxford Street. With no sounds except the dull ring of the telephone. No noises except the incessant clunk of the duplicating machine. And no chat except a steady stream of secretaries recounting their resumes. 
with many hours and days pockmarked by silence. Daisy often sat alone, with no one to talk to but herself. On the outside, Daisy seemed like a modern, independent businesswoman, bold, strong and confident. But having risked everything for one giant leap into the darkness, Daisy was often racked with anxiety, self-doubt and bouts of depression. So who killed Daisy and why? Well, there are several things we know about Daisy for certain. She wasn't a criminal. Daisy had no dodgy dealings. She didn't consort with deadbeats. And she had no criminal record. She was moral, decent, and didn't even return a library book late. She wasn't an addict. Daisy disliked gambling. She didn't do drugs. And although a moderate drinker who preferred gin or shandy, one year prior, she gave up alcohol and stuck to tonic water. She wasn't in debt. She had no loans. She paid her rent and every item in her office she owned. In fact, of the £500 she invested into her company, as a very frugal businesswoman, she still had £352 left. She had no secrets. As a timid woman, Daisy never stayed out late, rarely met new people, and always confided in her mother. And although she kept a diary, it contained nothing but her hopes and fears. In short, she worked hard, she lived well, she was no bother to anyone, and being surrounded by good, decent people, there was nothing in Daisy's life to suggest that she was ever in any danger. As a young, single and attractive woman, in her final year, Daisy dated several men. As always, she kept it professional. Most lasted a few weeks, rarely going beyond kissing, and they all ended amicably. Each of her boyfriends were traced, interviewed, and with solid alibis, they were discounted as suspects. She was social, but only mingled with her closest chums, Phyllis, Peggy, Mary and Gladys, going to the cinema, cafes, or one of six reputable West End clubs, so Daisy could get cheap theatre tickets. Of those who visited her office, although she provided printing services as an added income, the bulk of her clients were secretaries seeking work. So as far as we know, she had no issues, no enemies, and according to those who knew her, not a single reason why anyone would want to kill Daisy Wallace. In fact, the only criminal incident in Daisy's life was on the 10th of June 1949, as seeing the street door open, opportunist thief David Hill broke into her office and stole the only item of value, her typewriter. He was questioned, but at the time of her death, he was serving a 12-month prison sentence. One week before her death, the Adelphi Secretarial Agency had been running for seven months. Word of mouth had spread, and business was good. This should have been a time for celebration, but Daisy was depressed as although her work life was a success, in her eyes, her love life was a failure. With both sisters married, Daisy was cruelly regarded by society as a spinster. 
and the shame of it ate at her soul. Often she'd confide to her mother her fears that she would never find love. Not that the men that she dated were bad. They weren't. But being gripped with low self-esteem, she rejected them as she didn't feel that she was good enough. By day, she sat alone in her tiny office, riddled with anxiety, gripped with depression, and unable to see how truly amazing she was. As lost in solitude, she had no one to talk to but her own dark thoughts. And at night, unable to cope, she would cry herself to sleep. Daisy was a success, but so alone. And yet, all that would change. On the morning of Wednesday the 10th of August 1949, a bright young woman called Sheila Bennett walked into the Adelphi Secretarial Agency. Just like Daisy, she was polite, shy and bookish. And although work wasn't exactly chaotic, for the sake of her own mental well-being, Daisy hired Sheila as her assistant. Meeting her mum for lunch, it seemed to Ada as if a little weight had lifted off Daisy's shoulders. Her brown eyes were brighter, and her thin lips had lifted into a little smile. It was a simple answer to an easy question. As a full-time assistant, Sheila would be in valuable company. Costing just £4 a week, her new staff wouldn't break the bank. And starting the following week, Daisy's loneliness would soon be over. Monday the 15th of August 1949 was Sheila Bennett's first day at work. But Daisy Wallace's last day alive. The day started as every weekday did. Daisy rose at 7am, washed her face, dressed in stylish but sensible clothes, a pink rayon dress and a black overcoat with matching hat, stockings and shoes. She unfurled her curlers from her shoulder-length hair and applied her makeup, which was always neat and discreet. After a light breakfast of tea, toast and an apple, she kissed her mother goodbye. She left Cornwall Gardens at a little after 8am, took a short walk to Wilsdon Green Library, a bus to Notting Hill Gate and a central line tube to Hoburn Station. So she arrived at 157 High Hoburn at 9am sharp. With some of the other occupants already inside, the street door was unlocked and left open. Nothing out of the ordinary had happened. She met no one and her mood was good. Sheila Bennett started work at 9.30am. The morning schedule was kept light so Daisy could explain the systems. At 1pm they had lunch at Rocco's Cafe, and in the afternoon she had three appointments. All female, all secretaries, all who were accounted for, interviewed, all provided credible witness statements, and who were all disregarded as suspects. With no unusual visitors, no threatening calls, and no ominous letters, it was just a very normal day. As for the other occupants of 157 High Hoburn, Paul Fewer, the tailor, left at 11am 
Annie Henderson, the dressmaker, left at 2.30pm, and Doris Newton, the agent secretary, left at noon, none of whom returned until the next day. Thomas Cox, the fruit importer, whose office was next door to Daisy's on the third floor, popped in at 4.40pm to ask Daisy a question about workman's compensation. They chatted for two minutes, said goodbye, and Thomas left. This was corroborated by Sheila. Daisy's last client was Joyce Jones, who replied to an advert for typists. She arrived at 5.30pm, filled out an application, during which Sheila left for the day, and after a 10-minute interview, Daisy typed Joyce three introductory letters for secretarial jobs. They shook hands, and Joyce left. Joyce passed no one on the stairs. The street door was open. She saw nobody loitering, and with the exception of her killer, Joyce Jones was the last person to see Daisy alive. Being hidden away in the top floor office of an empty building, far from the rush hour traffic and distracted commuters, nobody witnessed her murder. So the only clues we have to go on are these. At 6.20pm, Iris Wilkins telephoned the agency at Daisy's request. Although usually prompt to pick up, the phone rang for a minute. Iris almost hung up when it was answered by a man with a gruff voice and no obvious accent. He barked, Hello? Iris asked, Is this the agency? Yeah, what do you want? Is Miss Wallace there? No, it's a bit late to be phoning. Besides, she's gone. Oh, well, this is Miss Wilkins. I'll phone again tomorrow. To which the man growled, Yeah, phone earlier next time. And hung up. Who he was? We may never know. At 6.30pm, 19-year-old Florence Crawley and her 16-year-old sister Ethel were in their bedroom at the rear of 158 High Hoban when they heard a woman scream. But living on a busy city street, next to two pubs and a dark alley, they thought nothing of it. Whether that was Daisy, we may never know. At 6.40pm, Harold and Doris Littler were walking down Dunn's Passage, an alley to the side of 157 High Hoban, when they heard a lady gasping and sobbing. Barely 20 paces from the street, Doris was nearly knocked off her feet by a man described as mid-twenties, five or four inches tall, stocky build, with dark hair and a swarthy complexion. He wore a white open-neck shirt, brown trousers, and was carrying a camel hair jacket, as if he was trying to hide something. Who he was, we may never know. But being unaware of what they saw or heard, none of them called the police. Without fail, Daisy would return home every day by 7.30pm. If she was meeting a friend, she would call her parents to let them know and she would be home by 11pm at the latest. By the next morning, with Daisy still missing, and fearing the worst, Ada called the phone in Daisy's office. But it was engaged. 
On Tuesday the 16th of August 1949, at 9.25am, Sheila Bennett returned for work. But with the street door locked, and getting no reply from the office phone, she went to the cafe next door and waited. At 9.45am, the first occupant to arrive was Annie Henderson, the dressmaker, who unlocked the street door and entered only as far as her office on the second floor. She saw and heard nothing suspicious. At 9.55am, Thomas Cox, the fruit importer, arrived and entered his office on the third floor, next door to Daisy's. But likewise, he saw and heard nothing suspicious. Noticing the street door was open, Sheila finished her coffee, collected the post, ascended the stairs, and she too saw and heard nothing suspicious. Except, as she pushed the white office door open, with it only open a crack, the sight inside made her gasp. There were no signs of forced entry, as the rimlock and hasp on the outside of the office door was in place, and the padlock and key were on top of the cupboard where Daisy had left it the day before. On the third floor stairwell wall were faint traces of blood, too smeared to recover a clear fingerprint, and with the blood group being type O, the same as Daisy's, it was too common to be of any use. Entering Daisy's tiny office, there were no signs of disorder. Her teacup was half drank, her files were neatly stacked, and fresh flowers were still in the vase. So neat had Daisy kept her office, that all that was unsettled was a wooden armchair, moved back a little which caused the red rug to rock up about an inch, and the phone was off the hook. An engaged tone was ringing as the receiver dangled over the desk. And likewise, nothing had been stolen. Her handbag was unopened, her jewellery was untouched, the typewriter and duplicating machine were still in situ, and with no cupboards ransacked, no cash taken, and no valuables kept on the premises, a robbery had not taken place. In fact, the only way that the police knew that there had been a crime was Daisy's body. Three feet from the door, slumped beside her desk, Daisy lay, face up and flat on her back. Her long legs bent back into the side. Her thin arms flexed, her palms flat, as if raised to her head. As under her torso, pools of blood had spread across the linoleum like red angel wings. A stark contrast to her ghostly pale face, the whites of her staring eyes, and the mottled purple of her lips, gaping open, as if in mid-scream. By her state of rigor mortis, she had been dead for at least 16 hours. Just like the office, Daisy was untouched. Her clothes were crumpled, but not ripped. Distressed, but not undressed. And being fully clothed, no sexual assault had taken place. In fact, with no signs of pregnancy, abortion, sexual disease or surgical scars, 
in keeping with her high standards, good morals and lacklustre love life, the pathologist confirmed that she had not had sex for at least several years. And yet, someone had brutally murdered her with force, anger and hatred. With bruises to her back, legs and buttocks, it's clear that at some point, Daisy fell. With stab wounds to her arms, hands and cheek, Daisy had tried to defend herself. And with the fingers and palm of her right hand slashed, during the attack, Daisy had grasped her killer's knife. Daisy was stabbed five times, three times in the back, one below her left shoulder, the six-inch stiletto blade exiting her armpit, one fractured her fourth dorsal vertebrae and fourth rib, and one just below her right shoulder, which cracked the ninth rib and ripped through her right lung. But neither of these killed her. He stabbed her twice more, once below the left nipple, with a force so fierce his fist broke her seventh rib and buried the blade so deep it impaled her liver, stomach and left kidney. And once more through her left breast, breaking her fifth rib and tearing through her right lung and her heart. And even though this last wound would prove fatal, to ensure that she was dead, having placed his blood-stained hand across her gasping throat, as she lay there, eyes wide, mouth open, with the weight of his body bearing down upon her, he strangled her until every ounce of her life was taken. Daisy Wallace died of shock, blood loss and multiple organ failure. She was 36 years old. Three hundred sets of fingerprints were taken, six hundred witness statements were checked, and after a large media campaign and a lengthy police investigation, with no motive, no suspect and no weapons found, the coroner concluded that Daisy had been murdered by persons unknown. And the case remains unsolved. So who killed Daisy Wallace? And more importantly, why? If this was a robbery, why wasn't anything stolen? If this was a rape, why hadn't she been molested? And if this was a revenge, what had she done? To who and why? She wasn't a criminal, she had no debts, and she didn't do drink or drugs. Everybody loved her, from her close family to her loyal friends. And as a shy, timid woman, the only people she consorted with was her new assistant, occasionally a co-worker, and hundreds of hopeful secretaries looking for work. And yet someone, for whatever reason, had murdered Daisy with a lot of hatred. As always, the trashy tabloids tried to pass this off as the sadistic work of a random maniac, having invented some tawdry lies about Daisy's life. But she deserved so much more. Daisy Edith Wallace was a good woman. She was moral, decent and kind. 
She was shy, timid, and slight. A nervous lady who set aside any thoughts of love or marriage, in the hope of bettering herself, in an age where the best a woman could be, was second to a man. And as she battled through anxiety, self-doubt, and depression, she strived to become something big, bold, and important. She was a modern businesswoman, ahead of her time. She was self-made. She was a trailblazer, and yet, she was so alone. She never wanted money, fame, or even success. All Daisy wanted was to be happy. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget, if you're a Murky Miler, to stay tuned for more extra goodies after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week. At the heart of every crime, there's a lie. In order to do this job well, you're going to have to learn to lie. But you're going to have to remember who you're lying to and when to lie and when not to lie. But a lie is only powerful if you choose to believe it. It all came out, all the story came out. It turned out he had two wives and five fiancés, that he wasn't marrying women because he loved them. He was actively impregnating women to rip them off for money, me being one of them. So why do we fall for it every time? My, my father taught me at a young age. He, he, says, he says, Carl, the two easiest things to sell anybody, anything that'll improve their looks and anything that'll make them money. And that's what you want to sell. Pretend Radio is a documentary podcast about people pretending to be someone else. I interview real con artists, snake oil salesmen, and former cult members. Anyone living a lie. Search for Pretend Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. We are the host of Hillbilly Horror Stories. What we do every week is we tell you mostly paranormal stories, and then we throw in a couple of uh, unsolved mysteries, maybe a little bit of true crime if it's creepy enough. And the beauty of this is that Tracy doesn't know the show, correct? This is correct. Never do. So then what happens when you don't know the show? I'm just as surprised as anybody else is. And that's the beauty of what our show is. We basically get the same reactions out of Tracy as what the listener at home is getting, and I think that's been a success to our show so far. Yeah, I think it works. We also use our show to promote mental health awareness and suicide awareness every show, so we get the added bonus of trying to help people out while you get to listen to paranormal shows. Amen, and that's what's important to us. So please subscribe to Hillbilly Horror Stories wherever you listen to your other podcasts. A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Amanda Richards and Amy McKnight, who instantly get sent a handwritten thank you card from me, as well as a little envelope full of Murder Mile stickers, badges, a fridge magnet, and a very rare, official Murky Miler badge. Ooh. As well as loads of exclusive Murder Mile videos, ebooks, and crime scene photos. Not bad for just $3 a month. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And with a big sigh of relief, he is finished. Holy crap. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> oh dear. Welcome to Extra Mile. Jesus Christ. Oh, right. I'm going to oh, I've got to move stuff around. Hang on. Oh. Uh so that was a really difficult record. I hope you enjoyed it. It was um it might be interesting. You might have enjoyed it. Oh, 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 sorry for new people. Uh this is Extra Mile. This is the unedited bit and blah 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 things. Hang on. I'll just move the stuff back. Um uh, yeah, unedited, unscripted. This is the bit where I add in extra details about the case you just heard about. But during this moment, I'm opening all my windows back up, opening all my doors. Because cause it's so noisy outside, because I, I record from the boat. Um, often it's really noisy outside, so I have to kind of muffle down the sound. Now, this was a really awful record, really awful. The first two hours... I'm gonna make a cup of tea as well. I deserve a cup of tea. Oh dear. Uh, the first two hours, I woke up and I was like, okay, let's get started. Uh, and obviously, because I'm on the canal, there's people going back and forth, which is fine. I kind of get used to it. And there's planes flying over because we're not far from Heathrow and I'm not far from Paddington, so you can hear trains going past. And you know, some little scrote was up to criminal activity this morning. So the police are out and the helicopter's over and the sirens. I'm used to that, it's London. Uh, unfortunately, oh, the towpath next to me, there's people going past back and forth, having conversations outside, which is fine. Uh, a man from the Canal and River Trust, who's the kind of authority who looks after us, decided to, he wanted to have a chat with me this morning. 
just a nice chat, but he was like halfway through the record. But more importantly, uh, I'm next to a nice church. Oh, get some biscuits. I'm next to a nice church, uh, and uh, it looks like they're doing a bit of construction work at the moment. So, uh, oh dear, oh, I'm gonna sit on this. Doing a bit of construction work. So, uh, a man decided, literally when I was starting to record, decided to put on the generator next to my boat and get out an angle grinder. And if you've ever seen an angle grinder, they're pretty loud. It's like one a big circular piece of spinning steel that you use to get rid of like, oh, big nasty pieces of other steel. And oh God. So literally I did the first recorder. Recorded, it took about two or three hours. Recorded it first. Um, and I had to pause every time he decided to use the angle grinder. And sometimes it was mid-sentence. And I did the whole lot and it was bloody exhausting. And the second I stopped, I was about to stop recording, he decided to go on a tea break and I was like oh for god's sake and he switched off his generator and I was like shall I just record with what I got because I didn't know because there was a real hum a real horrible hum in the background and I didn't know if it would match uh so I decided in the end to re-record everything and I've just literally so the version you've just heard is the second version not the first version the first version I'm gonna ditch second version was actually much better uh so yeah so I've just got the tea on at the moment. Uh, I've just opened the windows and doors. It's nice and peaceful now. You can hear a child in the background. When I started, there was kids going into school, so they were all in the playground screaming as kids do. But now, look at that, nice and peaceful. I could have done with that two hours ago. Uh, anyway, so hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, uh, that was uh, Daisy Edith Wallace. I think I heard about this uh, this case a long time ago I, th- I remember i remember seeing her photo so i'm trying to move my rug oh there we go i remember seeing her picture years ago and not knowing much about the case and i thought well, yeah let's give it a go uh let's pick it up i knew nothing entirely nothing about it um but uh yeah i quite enjoyed that one so where am i now i'm in little venice a place called little venice they call it little venice because because uh, there's you know venice has lots of canals and uh, little venice is one and Venice is very nice and historic, and Little Venice isn't. Uh, and uh, Venice is in in a nice part of Italy, and uh, Little Venice is at the back of Paddington Station. So you know, there's a lot of similarities. You know, you you can buy an ice cream here, I think, if you look really hard. There's no similarities at all. Anyway, I'm not too far from Doris Junet's house, the fourth victim of fourth, or technically the last victim of the Blackout Ripper. Uh, I'm not too. I'm literally not too far. Actually, I'm. I'm in the exact spot where the body of... Uh, I just just realised just now, thinking about it. I'm in the exact spot where the suitcase uh, which contained the body of Marta Ligman was found. Uh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in the exact spot. How lovely, that's me. So, <coughs> so I'm here. Uh, I've just done repairs to the boat. I'm heading East London because uh, I'm going to put some new covers on the boat. There's kind of canvas covers on the front which protect the bow so you can sit in there and relax and the ones i've got old aren't waterproof so i'm just splashing out some new ones can't afford it but they need to be done uh what else is happening i've just ordered a new batch of murder mile mugs Ooh, exciting which is which is very good indeed so uh order the mugs uh, 20 more I'm not doing the ones with sweeties anymore because, as you know, we did that before and it all went a bit crappy because the uh, the, the sweets, for some unknown reason, melted everywhere. And whenever people would receive them, they'd go, my, my mug's full of sludge. So I don't do that anymore. But now what I do, you get a mug, 
in there you get a handwritten card from me saying thank you you get some badges you get some stickers you get a fridge magnet uh you also get an official murky miler badge they're very rare there's only i've only given out a handful so far so with every mug you get one of those uh the price is now down to 10 pounds because i'm not putting the sweets in uh price is down to about 10 pounds and because because I'm not putting the sweets in anymore, it means the package is lighter, which puts it slightly under a, in a cheaper bracket, which is great. So I think before when you like you'd order a ten pound mug, and then you, if you send it to America, unfortunately it would cost around twelve, like twelve pounds sixty, I think it was. I think it's now down to about nine pounds fifty, just because I haven't put some bloody sweets in it. It's amazing, it really is. So uh, that it makes a real difference. So yeah, uh, it's much lighter and. Uh, uh, yeah, so I'm doing that. I'm keeping an eye because my tea is about to go. I've got biscuits here. Look, chocolate coated malted milk biscuits. You know the malted milk biscuits with the pictures of the two cows on the mummy cow and the baby cow. It's those, but they're covered in uh, chocolate. Let's do that. I don't want. Don't need a hot hot tea today. I just need this. There we go. Oh, tea. because oh, I recorded that that episode twice. I didn't have time to go and make another cup of tea because I just wanted to get I, I was racing with it hoping that the toss pot with the angle grinder uh, doesn't come back from his tea break uh, but it looks like he's uh, it looks like he's done now which is great there we go tea o'clock can't be a good cup of tea uh, so oh I thought I'd, I'd answer a question that someone it wasn't really a question someone kind of you know people leave lovely comments on all the social media platforms which i really do appreciate they really make a difference uh but someone someone left one comment on uh, one of the platforms i won't say where, where it is because i don't want to embarrass her but um obviously she didn't like murder mile but she said she said it was full of unfounded facts and i think the problem is that quite often when you hear stories, like my, I think I always try and do my my podcast very different. So instead of just giving you the, the the information about the murder itself, what I try and do is tell you about the person's life as much about their life as possible, so you love them and appreciate them and sympathise with them. So then, by the time it comes to the murder, they're not just a piece of meat; they really are. They're a whole, fully rounded person. You understand their hopes, their fears, their dreams. And you know, by giving you all of these details, it really does paint a picture. And I think I think sometimes people think that. Uh, like the lot of details that I do put in, and they go, "Oh, do you know why do we need to know what colour dress she was wearing?" Do you know, like, like with uh, Daisy Wallace, do you know she was a she was a very neat lady. She was very quite prim. She was very proper. She she had uh, nice discreet makeup, so she wasn't showy. These are all kind of little details. Do you know she always thought she wore a uh, a nice kind of pink rayon dress with black. So pink and black is a nice kind of bold colours, but it really. Uh, it was her way of saying, look, I, I, I am bold and I'm confident, although deep down we knew that she really wasn't. Do you know, she had tea and toast and an apple for breakfast. It, she's quite a frugal woman, do you know. She she wouldn't, she, she wasn't having a big old fry up. These are all little details that tell you a hell of a lot about a person. Uh, what's in her office, do you know, it was very neat. It was, it was the bare essentials that she needed. She had a duplicating machine, she had a typewriter, she had one window which gave her a crappy view outside. But it was always neat, tidy, it always had flowers in there. She had a red rug in the middle of the room. All these details are really important. So I think the lady who, who complained that she was like, oh, all this unfounded information, I think what threw her off is the fact that normally you don't hear these details, but I love these details. I think these paint a big picture. Do you know, I love, which is why I 
use the uh, investigation files because a lot of details people would kind of ignore. Oh, it's raining. A lot of details people would kind of ignore when they're going through these case files. They'd look for, right, where did the murder happen? How was they killed? How were they killed? That was a bit of bad English there. How were they killed? Uh, who are these people? Whereas me, I'm like, you know, if you're reading a witness statement, you're good because a lot of witness statements are full of really what you would think is unimportant information. But if, say, witness statement says that uh, this you know, this person loves bingo, do you know, if you learn a lot about a person, if they do they love uh, bingo or do they love going down the pub and getting pissed? Do they love knitting or do they love going out and gambling on the dogs? Do you know, you can learn a lot about a person by these little tiny details. Do you know, we're all very different. Do you know, I wake up in the morning and I have a, a cup of tea. If I woke up in the morning and had 10 cans of beer, that makes me an entirely different person. So even though it seems unimportant, it really is important in order to paint a picture of who this person is. Because you can't... The problem is when you, you look at a, like, a lot of reports out there, like... Um, I was thinking about this the other day with uh, with uh, the first victim of the the Blackout Ripper, uh, Evelyn Hamilton. When you look at her picture, do you, know, you look at a lot of the news reports that are out there at the time, and all you really get is name, age. Sometimes they say she was a pharmacist, which is correct, but they use her picture and they go, "Oh, she looks like a bit of a dowdy woman, you know, really miserable, like that." But when you look into her life, when you look at the details about her life, you can see that she's just she's not dour she's just she deliberately dresses down because she doesn't want attention she wants to kind of blend into the background you know she's not trying to make a big thing of herself she's not trying to draw attention she's just she's quite a shy woman um and you know she's never really had attention from men she doesn't know how to receive attention from men so when she does get attention from a man finally uh, you know uh, the Blackout Ripper himself, who was, you know, uh, dressed in his uh, military uniform and quite a handsome man as well, with quite piercing eyes. This must have been quite exciting for her, you know, um, and it was her birthday as well. So all these little details really do make her, uh, uh, I think it's important for, uh, to tell you all about this the story. Um, it's been interesting this week because uh, Adam at uh, UK True Crime Podcast, if you haven't listened to UK True Crime Podcast, really do listen to it. Adam does a fantastic job, really amazing storyteller, but also he really thinks about the stories. He really goes into details and you, you hear it not just from fact, but from heart as well. Do you know, he's very passionate about what he does. Uh, so, yeah, check out UK True Crime Podcast. He's a really good storyteller. Um, but Adam asked me to write a blog for uh, his podcast as well. So I'm sitting on the wicker basket and it's creaking. Um, and he, he asked me to write a blog about uh, about Murder Mile itself. So I decided to write quite an honest uh, blog about how Murder Mile started. You know how it started, uh, if you go back to Extra Mile Part 1. Uh, but I, I wanted to put in there about why I write it the way I write it. And that was really interesting. No one's, I've never been asked that before, so I never really thought about why I do what I do. But um, it is it is all about it's all all about the person. That's important. It's it's I, you you know how much I hate the the way that some people are tr victims are treated as name, age, and collection of injuries. They are fully rounded people, and their stories are important, and they should be treated that way. And it's the the same with um, uh, Daisy Wallace. Do you know, I, I, I think at the start, when I started going through it, I knew I was going to like this story because, because you know, she's a nice lady. And even though there's mystery in there and even though it's unresolved, do you know, um, there was a lot, I'll go into this very shortly, but there was a lot of really spurious shit created by the tabloids 
uh, or people who came in, they'd read it in the newspapers about this case, and they'd gone, oh, oh, I saw her with a Maltese man. It's like, in this era, if you said Maltese man, that suggested prostitution. There was a lot of emphasis around maybe she was a prostitute, maybe she was into drugs. Do you know, there's a lot of people creating stories for their own benefit or for the newspapers. But when you sit down and go through the fact none of it's true at all she's just a really lovely lady and I, that's why i felt it deserved to be told that way it deserved to be told who she was what she was about that she was quite shy that she you know she was an independent businesswoman who even though she was quite shy she was really pushing forwards and trying to do the absolute best that she could in a difficult era do you know this is late 1940s not not only difficult for everyone because of post-war and you know the economy was all to cock but as a woman as well, I mean, God, I mean, she really did a great job. Uh, so that's what I wanted to get across with this episode. Whoa, cup of tea. Oh, you can't beat a cup of tea. Cup of tea and a biscuit. Right. Oh, okay. So, um, I was going to add in some questions at the end, but I decided at the end of this episode that we'd already had a lot, a lot of questions going on. So I saved a couple of questions for the end. So, this is up for you to answer. If you've got if you've got any theories, message me. It, um, you know, because this is an open episode. It really is. Maybe we might come back to this if I can do some more research. But let's let's think about this. The man with the gruff voice and no discernible accent uh, at about six fifteen p.m. on the night she, she died. Now we know that she died between six p.m. and eight p.m. Uh, from what we can tell, it seems to be around six thirty p.m. Uh, the man with the gruff voice and the no discernible accent. Why did he pick up the phone? Why, when the phone was ringing, why did he not let it just ring off? Or why did he not pick it up and hang it, hang it up again? Or disconnect it? Why did he pick up the phone and go hello and answer all those questions? Was Daisy elsewhere at the time? Was she on the toilet? Was she packing up? The toilet was actually on the ground floor out the back. It wasn't in the offices. This is old days. This is 1940s. So, so the toilet was actually in the uh, in the backyard, as they called it. Uh, so maybe she was three floors down, which is why he picked her up. <coughs> he picked the phone up. Or, do you know, uh, it doesn't make sense why he would pick up her phone. Why he would answer her phone. He clearly knew who she was. If you listen to what he said, he clearly knew who she was. And that it was uh, opening hours had finished. So he clearly knew her and, and how she worked. Um, but if he intended to kill her, why did he answer the phone? It doesn't make sense at all. Um, so was she dead at that point? I mean, he, the, the, it said that she answered it at 6.15pm, but the screams were heard at 6.30. Screams are, are, are her, she was also heard gasping at 3.40. So, yeah, why? Why did that happen? Why was there no disorder in the room at all? Uh, so clearly if a fight hadn't broken out or it wasn't a stranger this must have been someone that she trusted because <coughs> don't forget she was quite a timid woman she was quite shy she really didn't like engaging with people who she didn't know maybe this was a customer maybe it was someone who was coming maybe if it was a man maybe it wasn't a secretary maybe it was a man coming uh, to do some printing to pick up some printing because that was one of the other jobs that she did uh, and maybe that's why she thought she could trust him. Maybe he attacked without her knowing. Do you know, maybe it was a surprise attack. Um, but this is this is weird. Why would anyone want to kill her? If you think about it, there's there's no theft. Nothing was stolen at all. No sex had taken place. Just death. So someone 
had decided to kill her. They'd used real hatred, real force, and they'd brought a knife with them because there wasn't a knife in the room. This was uh, They said that the knife was likely to have been a six-inch stiletto blade, which uh, kind of like a flick knife, only without the flick. Uh, so it was about that size, double-edged. Uh, they know that because she grabbed the blade and it was in her hands and, and uh, she got wounds to her palm and her fingers in exactly the same point. So they know that she grabbed the blade and it was double it was double edged. Uh, someone had been sitting in that wooden chair. So the, obviously Daisy had a desk. She sat in her chair on one side with her back to the wall. The client's chair was on the other side of the desk, which makes sense. Uh, uh, facing where the duplicating machine would have been uh, or the main part of the room. Someone had sat in that chair just before Daisy had died. They'd pushed the chair back and the rug, the red rug, had rocked up a little bit. Now, maybe this was Joyce Jones, because she had left half an hour before the phone... Half an hour, 25 minutes before the phone had been answered by the gruff man. Or maybe the gruff man had been sitting in that chair. We don't know. Uh, obviously, they, uh, this was a high-traffic area, because you get a lot of people coming into the office. Uh, so the police did take fingerprints uh inspector cheryl who's the, like the father of fingerprinting he did it all himself he, he often did anyway he always did it with murder cases um he went in there uh there were um fingerprints found in the room but it was it's high traffic area so it's hard to determine <coughs> people's prints um they went through all of Daisy's files. They found there was roughly 300 people who were on her books. They interviewed every single one of them and they took all of their fingerprints as well. Uh, and all of those people were discounted. Um, but why weren't there any fingerprints at the scene from the killer? Uh, maybe he was wearing gloves, which would also suggest that uh, he, this was premeditated, which obviously it would be because he was carrying a knife. Uh, maybe he was interviewed. We don't know. Or maybe, yeah, maybe he was interviewed, and maybe this, maybe he was discounted as a suspect. We don't know. This is really weird. Uh, but obviously, we know that uh, screams are heard next door by Florence and Ethel, her sisters. They said they said it was coming from the left and up, which is in the right direction for Daisy's office. Uh, and then Harold and Doris Littler, who were walking through Dunn's Passage, which is the passage immediately next to 157 High Hoban, <coughs> which is where Daisy's office was, they heard um, the window. So the window would have been open. They heard a gasping and a lady screaming. But they didn't know who it was. Uh, so all we really know for certain uh, is that he was right handed because of the way the stab wounds happened. Uh, he obviously had uh, he was obviously a, obviously a relatively strong man because he was able to use a lot of force. Uh, in some cases, the knife went in right to the hilt. So it was the full six inches of the blade. And by the angle of the knife, uh, it is said that he was of a similar height to Daisy. And Daisy was five foot eight. Uh, and that's all we really know for certain. And obviously, uh, Harold and Doris said they saw a man running away. But don't forget, this is this is London. Um, this is rush hour. These are people on a high street. Do you know, you walk down uh, any part of central London at between 5 and 6 p.m., you're going to see people running all the time. You're going to see people looking out of breath. You're going to see people looking exasperated. Have they all committed murder? Probably. Uh, <laughs> probably not. Do you know, it's it's like uh, he they didn't see him leave the premises. And the problem is when you look at the statement as well, unfortunately, the statement is clouded in a lot of kind of 1940s racism. 
So uh, every time I pick, pick up a case and there's always like a, uh, a supposed suspect in there, people often always say swarthy. That was kind of real word for kind of um, uh, in the 1940s that they used. Like inst instead of saying someone was someone was Asian or Italian or, you know, it, it kind of means dark skinned, but not black. It's but it's also a derogatory term that they used in the 1940s. It even sounds horrible as well, doesn't it? It's like they, they're, they're not saying the person's Italian. They're saying swarthy. But. When they actually interviewed Harold and Doris Littler, they asked for a description, which is the one that I gave you earlier on. Uh, and then the police actually sat down with them and they said, OK, we've got some photos of some known felons here. So we want you to go through them and point out which one uh, the suspect that you saw is similar to or which one he is. And they pointed to two. Neither of them were Italian at all or, or kind of, you know, had the Italian look. One of them was English and one of them was Polish. Uh, they actually, it was a big part of this case. I took it out of the story because it throws it off. They interviewed both men. Uh, both men had prior convictions, uh, not for murder, not for assault, uh, mostly for fraud. And uh, when they interviewed them, all both of them had really strong alibis. So they were discounted as well. So... I took this out of the story because it slowed it down, but Daisy did have a series of relationships. Police obviously interviewed her boyfriends. Um, so I'll go through those very quickly. There was um, a guy called Charles Marsh. who was an accountant. Uh, they met in roughly 1939. He met Daisy at a dance organised by the Regent Street Polytechnic, which is still there today. Uh, they became friendly until 1943. He didn't see her again until Christmas 1946. Uh, and then... And then he didn't see her again until June 1949. So this is just a few months before she died. Um, she called him and said that she'd started a secretarial agency. Um, <coughs> and, and to think of her, if he knew of anyone in need of a change of job. Uh, they'd got close over the years, uh, but mostly it was just kissing. Uh, now, this would be the I think this is the reason why she actually quit drinking. Uh, they said that one night. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, one night during the air raid. So it wasn't. This is this is. Uh, this would be uh, yeah mid uh, early mid forties on an unspecified date. Uh, they had too much to drink, which was rare for her. Uh, she stayed over at his flat as his landlady was away. Uh, she uh, uh, she told him that she was having... oh yeah she told him that she was having her period at the time and that the sex would be out of the question. But they still shared a bed together. Uh, in the morning, she felt very foolish about it. Um, uh, and that seems to be the only kind of incidence of kind of a little bit of immorality in her life. I use the word immorality kind of for her. I guess it was immoral. But, you know, sharing a bed with a man was really something that that she really didn't do. She was, she was quite a moral woman. So that was Charles Marsh. He was uh, he didn't match any of the descriptions that were given. And he had an alibi as well. Edward Kipps, married man. There was a couple of instances of... Um, Daisy dating married men. Uh, uh, he met Daisy in a public house in Richmond in May 1949. Uh, he saw her for about six weeks. He said all, all they did was kissing. He was in the middle of a divorce. Uh, they terminated their friendship as Daisy didn't want to complicate the fact that he was a married man going through a divorce. And they haven't spoken since. Uh, he was discounted as a witness. Frank Ashen... Uh, now, they met in June 1949. She was his personal secretary at Gobbold's, 
Godbolds, which was the advertising agency she was at for two years <coughs> before she started her own agency. Uh, he took her out for lunch once or twice, and in the evenings they worked late together and indulged in kissing, and as with all the others, but nothing more, the affair finished when Daisy started her own company. Uh, there's another one here called Andrew Mackey. Uh, uh, he, she came to, uh, he came to her to find work. Uh, he was a wages clerk, so she did uh, not just secretaries, but kind of uh, administrative jobs as well. And obviously, his job suits that. Uh, said she was a pleasant lady uh, who would invite him for tea and sandwiches. Um, <coughs> she was well regarded, respectable. Uh, he went to see her on the 5th of August, which is a couple of days before she died. Uh, he went out with her that week uh, to the New Victoria Cinema to watch Kind Hearts and Coronets. Kind Hearts and Coronets, fantastic Ealing comedy with Alec Guinness, one of my favourites. And said she was a very friendly woman, uh, described her as ple pleasant, not flighty, intelligent and strictly businesslike. He said that uh, 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 he said that she was thinking of giznick, giving her business business up as it wasn't paying up, paying off. Uh, I can't speak. Wasn't paying her overheads. Um, she never spoke of romance or boyfriends. Again, all of these men were uh, discounted as uh, suspects uh, because they had, had other boys at the time and they didn't fit the description given by the Littlers. Littlers. Uh, okay, so police uh, checked for other witnesses on the street. They did a lot of canvassing around. Um, they asked uh, bus, bus garages and posted in local papers. Um, it is said... Is this in there? Did I put this in there? It is said it's in a lot of the papers that the um, a local chemist had said that a swarthy man around the same time had come into his uh, chemist shop with an injury to his to his hand, and uh, the chemist had kind of uh, helped just stitch it up and things like that. But nothing more was said about that, and they said that man matched the same description or a similar description to the guys that Harold and Doris Little had seen running away from near where the location happened. Um, I checked the witness statements. Uh, they didn't match. The times don't match. The dates don't match. It's, and there's no evidence of, uh, the, he didn't take the, the guy's name. So we, do, we don't know who it was, who this chemist uh, helped fix the hand of, if he actually did it at all or whether, you know, whether it was just, a bit of notoriety for him. This is, unfortunately, in a lot of these cases, I go through all the files. I've spoken to police about this as well. It's really annoying. People seem to uh, get excited about things. When a case happens, um, the people who can help the police often don't because they don't want to get involved. But there, are, unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there who believe that they're helping the police by... by Joe giving the police information which is incorrect or wrong and they're just like oh trying to help or they're trying to build a notoriety for themselves so unfortunately when you open a lot of these police files it's full of a lot of bullshit it really is so um sadly uh whether this uh so I I checked uh I I checked the details of this this pharmacist and uh but there's no evidence there's no proof that a man actually came into his shop uh, there was no blood left behind. There was no evidence left behind. He, you know, he, the man didn't say anything. He didn't say what his name was. So it's all kind of irrelevant, really. Um, when they checked the scene, obviously except the murder scene, they asked everyone who worked in the uh, in one five seven High Hope, and if there was anything odd in the building, everyone had to check around 
uh, it was Thomas Cox, who uh, whose office was on the same floor as Daisy. He had to check around, and he said the only thing that was odd was that uh, the lavatory, the toilet, which is outside in the backyard, that there was always a bulb in the holder, but that day the bulb was missing, and the lavatory was dark. So, whether it had broken and someone had removed it to repair it, or whether, because Daisy's office was at the back, maybe someone had taken out the bulb and was sitting in the toilet at the back, waiting for everyone else to leave i don't know i mean i mean could be could be i don't know but that's just an idea anyway so um so we don't know any more about this suspect uh there's a lot of information in the papers about who the suspect was but he was never traced so no suspect um Often in a lot of the news stories, they add in this extra element here, and it's all very exciting, to the point where at the start, before I started researching, this is why I hate uh, researching cases when I already know a little bit too much about it, I almost called this story uh, The Slaughtered Spinster and the Samurai. Now, that was what it was going to be called. But... I mean, it's I mean, it's wrong in its own right anyway. But this is why this was this was reported in the papers and it's true, but it's, it's not true as well. Uh, a gentleman called Gilbert Martin, who was foreman of Wackett Brothers Demolition Company. Good name for a demolition company. Uh, now, they were engaged in demolishing 154 to 161 High Hoban. Um, and that was in May 1957. So this is what's so like eight years later. Um, in the back room, which was used as a storeroom on the second floor of 154 High Hoban, so this is three doors down, uh, they found a double-edged sword, so double-edged, which is what it's meant to be, uh, behind a pile of empty packing cases and rubbish. Uh, and rubbish, as in rubbish, not and rubbish. Uh, the sword was from the Crusade era. The blade was uh, 32 inches long, width of about one inch. It was double-edged, very rusty, and after, but after laboratory testing, no blood traces were found. Uh, the same pathologist, so, who is Dr. F. E. Camps, who did the the autopsy, looked at the blade and he said it was not the weapon which killed Daisy. Um, and at the time, there was no access between one five four and one five seven High Hoban, so this was dismissed as evidence. Oh. So. Um, they felt, as always, you know, the press jumped on it. They were like, oh, we found a knife. Oh, it's very exciting. This must be it because they go, oh, it's a double-edged blade, isn't it? But don't forget the blade that had killed Daisy was six, uh, six inches long, long, not 32 inches long. And this sword uh, was very rusty. It wasn't very sharp and it had no blood on it. Even though they, you, know, you could wash off the blood, there'd still be traces of blood because if it's rusty, there would be pits in it. So uh, that was entirely discounted by the police. <sighs> there we go. Was that good? Did you enjoy that? <coughs> oh. Still got a hint of uh, uh, oh, chest infection. There we go. So, um, next week, we've got another case coming up. Uh, this will be the death of Reginald West. It's quite interesting. It's a, uh, a case that, oh, I think I... I, th- I think I found it in a paper ages ago where I'd, I'd, I'd just done a search in the British paper archive for um, Murder Soho and this cropped up and literally all there is in the paper was it was it wasn't even five lines it was like a, a small box the size of a matchbox that was the size of an article it just says man dies in club uh, but I managed to find the file 
I found, found the crime scene photos. I was in the invigilation room in the uh, the archives where they put people who were looking at naughty stuff. And I opened it up and I looked at the file and I went, well, where is he? This meant to be a crime scene photo with body in situ, but where is he? And then I looked again and went, oh, shit. So that's next week's episode. That'll be good. I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, episode 59. That'll be episode 60 as Reginald West next week. And then I think I'm going to sit down and the two-parter that didn't go out, which is the reason why we're two weeks late, uh, I'm going to sit down and work out how to tell that story. It's a, it's a good episode. Two really, really good episodes. But they're different to Murder Mile, and I have to make them work. So I need to go in and rewrite them, re-edit them. But they will be going out. I think... But get ready. Uh, this is why I'm going to put them mid, mid-series, because they're different to everything else. They're very unlike the one you had last week, uh, the Jack, Jack, Jacqueline Beery, and this one, the Daisy Wallace. And actually, next week's episode is slightly different as well. But anyway, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that. Whew. Man with uh, angle grinder hasn't come back. He must be on a good lunch break. Anyway, I hope he enjoys it. Anyway, uh, have yourselves a good day. Uh, have fun, and I will speak to you all soon. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.